Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, about the way of assurance. Now, it may seem rather odd to preach on assurance of salvation in a seminary chapel, but I have two reasons for doing this. Uh, So many of you will be ministering to people in local congregational settings who struggle with assurance. It is a regular part of pastoral ministry. Uh, If you're doing mission work, you're going to be helping people who are struggling with assurance. But also, a second reason, I do not want to be presumptuous. Just because you're in a wonderful theological atmosphere and you're interacting together on the truths of Scripture day after day doesn't mean that some of you may not be struggling with assurance. And so I want us to go to the Word of God. That's where we go to see how we stand in full assurance of our salvation. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and assure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, how did you come to God? You came through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ via the work that Jesus accomplished in his death and bodily resurrection. But when you came to Jesus Christ, you also came with your personality, with your emotional wiring. You came with your background. And while the gospel affects those things, the gospel did not eradicate those things. One's personality, when you come to Christ, should have something of the aroma of having come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and that indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that consciousness and outworking of his love. But it's still the same personality. For instance, Saul of Tarsus believed the gospel, but prior to believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, he had this very intense wiring in which he was doing everything he could to try to get rid of Christians and stamp out and destroy Christianity. But when he became a new creature in Christ, the same intensity that was wrapped up in his personality continued as he pursued others with the gospel. So, In other words, 
If my emotional wiring tends toward highs and lows, if it tends toward great intensity as an unbeliever, it's going to continue with that great intensity as a new creation in Christ. I still possess that same emotional wiring. The highs and the lows that are wrapped into my DNA uh, are, are still there. And so as I grow in Christ, those emotional patterns about me, while they may have been very predictable as an unbeliever, are now gradually being affected by this grace of God that is working deeply in us. It's not that our personality leaves us. It's not that our emotional wiring leaves us when we come to Christ, but rather we're learning to submit all of our life to Christ's power and to depend upon his grace and sufficiency so that we're learning by, uh, just as the apostle Paul learned, that God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. Now, that's where the matter of assurance comes into sharp focus because we're never to just assume that we're Christians. We're to know that we are. And we are to experience assurance that we are in Jesus Christ. And our personalities in our emotional wiring and our background do not vanish when it comes to the matter of assurance. They continue to affect us in the way that we perceive and process the Christian faith. And so how do we work through who we are while we are wrestling and coming to terms with assurance. Well, some people treat assurance as though it is some kind of decision that we make. But does the Bible tell us just pray and ask for assurance? Does it tell us to just make some kind of decision for assurance? And then suddenly assurance happens. Rather, what the Bible teaches us is that assurance is not a static position, it's not a decision, but rather assurance is an active process in which we go on experiencing confidence with God through Jesus Christ. But what does this process look like? That's what I want us to investigate under three headings. The first is this, God conquers the heart to bring assurance. Now, you will notice that John has already, in 1 John, you're familiar, I trust, with 1 John. Uh, he's already been discussing this issue of assurance. It's woven throughout the entire epistle. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 10, that same chapter. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 29, uh, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of, of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14, chapter 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So he shows us that obedience and love and practicing righteousness are hallmarks of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. But do we just 
do those things in some kind of decisive manner and suddenly we have assurance. No, he talks about our practicing obedience and our practicing love and our practicing righteousness as evidences that we're in Christ. But what happens in the process of life as we give attention to obedience and we give attention to loving one another and we give attention to practicing righteousness? We blow it and we struggle in our obedience in some area of life. And we certainly can love people that are easy to love, but how about those people that have snarky attitudes? It's a little bit hard to love them. And then we look at our righteousness level and it seems like the tank is pretty low. And so in that process, do we lose assurance because we're not measuring up to the level that we think we should? That almost seems realistic, doesn't it? And if we're honest with ourselves, don't we admit that we have those times that our obedience and our love and our righteousness seem to be abstract ideas instead of concrete realities with us? Now, I want you to see how this text is set up in a little bit broader context. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 18 John is fathoming this issue of love. And what he does, he contrasts it by Cain's hatred with the love of Jesus Christ in laying down his life for us. And in verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Does that sting? Don't we sometimes wrap our fist around our stuff and turn the other way when someone has need? That happens to us, doesn't it? And so John then gives this very tender exhortation. Look in verse 18. Little children, you see the tenderness? He's not coming with a club. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. But then see what happens next. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and assure our heart before him. Now, the opening words here, by this, are used several times in 1 John, and that is John's way of gathering what he stated and bringing it forward. It's almost like he says, okay, I'm taking this bag, I've already packed it up, and I'm bringing it into this next picture that I'm giving to you. And so John has not abandoned the previous subject in verses 11 through 18. Instead, he's extending his argument. He's carrying it forward. Here's what I mean. The intense conviction of failing to lay down our lives for the brethren and to love in a way that we withhold nothing from those who are in need that he's just stated, that kind of declaration disrupts our spiritual equilibrium. It unsettles us. And so John, of necessity, tells us how we'll come to the place of once again walking in assurance and confidence. And surprisingly, he doesn't tell us it's not going to happen, that, that it's going to happen by our level of performance. John doesn't say, work harder and do better 
and you'll have assurance. Because the reality is, we can do great acts of obedience and love and righteousness, and we'll still look around and say, I could have done more. I could have done far more. You see, those things, love, righteousness, obedience, are simply markers. They're evidence that we're in Christ. They do not in themselves give us assurance. Assurance must come from the Lord. And so John writes, verse 19, by this we shall know, a future middle, so we shall ourselves know. It's very intense, and he's showing a process. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure, again, continuing this process, and reassure our heart before him. And he explains how. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. Now, why does our heart condemn us? Well, we get bogged down with guilt over our sins. We fail to obey the Lord. We fail to love others. We get selfish. I mean, we could go on and on. And when that happens, especially when we have a very intense wiring in our personality, our hearts try to exercise control over us. And our hearts begin to recklessly sling doubts and unbelief at our failures. And there are all these accusations that come. And then Satan piles on and adds to the accusations. And what happens is that our hearts betray us. Something in the feeling department of our minds begins to go astray from our confidence in Christ. And we wonder if we'll ever recover. And so we get desperate. And so what do we do? We try to work up good feelings. And so we'll do different things to make ourselves feel better. Or we double down on doing things in order to achieve assurance. But it's not found in those things. We think, if I can just love a bit more, if I can just be a little bit more obedient, I'm going to find assurance. But look what John says in verse 20. He shows us that this assurance happens for those who are in Christ. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. So he knows those sins. He knows the selfishness. He knows the self-centeredness. He knows the greed. He knows the loveless ways. He knows the disobedience. He knows far more than we know about ourselves. He knows everything, John says. But this is what else he knows. You remember what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.19, when he was describing some who had turned away from the truth by saying that the resurrection of the dead had already happened. And then he made this declaration. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. That's why God is greater than our heart and he conquers our heart. He does not let us flounder in condemnation through those betraying hearts. For whenever our heart condemns us, John says, God is greater than our hearts. So he's saying that our God who knows us 
Our God takes action in order to conquer the wavering heart to bring sweet confidence and renewed assurance. And how does he do that? Well, he takes us back into his big-hearted grace of forgiveness through Christ. And he shows us once again the power of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that flurry of condemnation, we've somehow or another lost sight of what Christ has done. And we've turned inward and we've looked on ourselves and we looked at, at, uh, at through the eyes of works righteousness, thinking that if I can just do enough, I'll gain assurance. But John says, no, it's not in what we do that we find assurance. It is in what Christ has already done. And so the Lord brings us back to the wonder of this saving person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings us back to this Christ and he washes over our doubts and he strips away that condemnation. Now, why is this so important? Because of that assurance, we're spiritually paralyzed. And there are some, even involved in active ministry, standing in front of congregations or standing in, in teaching a, a small group or leading a mission trip, and they're struggling over their assurance. It's critical that we experience this assurance. So the first thing we see is that God conquers the heart to bring assurance. Second, confidence with God leads to more intense God dependence. So in a sense, assurance of salvation gives us confidence with God that greases the tracks of our spiritual lives. Because without assurance, the normal patterns of Christian living feel sort of like fingernails scraped across uh, chalkboards. We pray, but we don't pray with confidence. We obey, but we don't do it with joy. We attempt to please God, but we do it out of necessity instead of enjoying his pleasure. So in other words, without the kind of assurance that John speaks of, we can go through the motions of Christianity without the joy and deep satisfaction that is truly found in Christ. And so notice what John tells us in verse 21. Beloved, there again, tenderness. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So when the weight of condemnation is lifted, confidence with God abounds. And it's not some kind of sterile, cold, calculating confidence where we've added up our deeds and we've checked the list and we've said, well, look at all the good things I've done. It's, it's not anything like that at all. It's the confidence before God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that word confidence, one uh, lexicon translates it as a joyful heart. It's the same word that we read together earlier from Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us draw near to God with confidence to the throne of grace. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But what is it that gives us the confidence to do that? It is, as the writer of Hebrews said, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So what do we do? So let us hold fast our confession. In other words, 
let us not lose our focus on the Lord Jesus and what he has done. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So condemnation is not removed because we happen to live live a little bit better. It's removed through Christ who took our sin and our guilt in his own body on the cross. And our joyful confidence in God then is only because we've seen in a fresh way what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf and we've believed him. And we live in that confidence and that begins to motivate us to go to the Lord in prayer. And so verse 22, this confidence is evident because we treasure Christ's commands. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. When you keep something, it's the idea you watch over it, that you pay attention to it, you treasure it. The kind of obedience he's talking about here is not the obedience of a fearful subject to an all-powerful tyrant who's ready to club him, but rather it's that treasuring obedience of a loyal, loving child to a generous father. If our hearts condemn us, we might go ahead and obey because we're afraid God's going to get us. Something's going to happen to us. That's the cold heart of a legalist. It is not the warm heart of family love. And so our praying is affected and our obedience is affected. You see, John has not given us a, a quid pro quo, you do this and God will do that, but rather obedience is the fruit of a life that is experiencing assurance in Christ. And confidence with God becomes more and more evident as we treasure his commandments and we do so, and the, the preposition is very intense, we do so before his face. In other words, confidence with God makes us conscious that we're living life before God's face. Now, how do we respond when we know that nothing is hidden from God? And yet, this God who conquers our hearts and who breathes confidence and assurance into us does that by bringing the fresh light of the effectiveness of his son on our behalf. What, what happens when God begins to breathe that assurance in. Well, we ask and we keep asking, John says. And we receive and we keep receiving. We treasure his commandments while seeking to live God-pleasing lives before his face. And that kind of assurance doesn't make us cocky, but it humbles us and it motivates us to pray and obey and please God as we begin to live more intense God-dependence. And so the first thing we see here is that God conquers the heart in order to bring assurance. And the second thing, there's confidence with God that leads us to more intense God dependence. And the third thing that we see is that the way of assurance follows his commandment. Now, John has just spoken of how our treasuring his commandments as those who treasure his commandments, we're doing that because we have confidence through him having conquered the condemnation in our hearts and now he zeroes in on one commandment 
What one commandment can I walk in that will help me walk in assurance? Well, he mentions one commandment that has two prongs to it. Notice what he says. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, remember, with by this, he's taking the argument he's given and he's bringing it forward. And by this, I mean, how am I going to do this commandment? And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, I'm referring to this as the way of assurance because that's really how John poses it. You'll notice the conjunction and, and this is his commandment in verse 23. He's showing us that he's joining the previous declarations, that God is conquering our hearts to bring assurance, and that this new joyous confidence with God is leading to more intense God dependence. And now he's giving action. He calls it his commandment. And this is the process, this is the way that assurance continues. And here it is. Believe in Jesus and love one another. Don't we overcomplicate things a lot of times? Look at the simplicity. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us and that's really the essence of the christian life isn't it now notice the first prong to believe in the name of his son jesus christ means we're believing the whole person of christ we're not picking pieces of jesus and things that we like and laying aside things that we don't or things that we think are are just a little little too tough for us no we believe him we believe this jesus that has been revealed in the gospel We believe what he has done on the cross as our substitute. We believe in his bodily resurrection, and we're living in the reality of that. So to believe in the name of his son is to count on his promises in the gospel. The way of assurance is not found by our working up some kind of mental gymnastics so that you feel better about yourself, or the way it happens so often in the late 60s and early 70s, someone would say, well, if you need assurance, you just need to go out and say, God, I'm assuring right now and I'm driving a stake in the ground. And if you have trouble, go out and look at that stake. That was silly. It was ridiculous. No, you look to Christ. You don't go look at some stupid stake in the ground. You look at the Lord Jesus Christ. It's found, assurance is found by anchoring your trust in Jesus is found by seeing what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf in his death and resurrection, is found by relying upon satisfaction in the Lord Jesus as the God-satisfying finality of his work. That's why we regularly read the Word and we meditate on it and we pray through it. And we corporately gather to study this gospel and worship the Christ of the gospel. Because as we do, we settle more and more into that way of assurance through believing in the Lord Jesus. So many times in counseling people that have struggled with assurance, I'll ask, well, tell me about your devotional life. 
And I would say probably 98, 90% of the time, they shake their head and say, well, it's not too good right now. So you're not reading the word? Well, maybe once or twice a week. Oh, really? Okay. And tell me about your prayer life. Oh, it's, it's just not very good. And, you know, and I'm just kind of run through the list. And I'll say, so you want assurance? You're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. If you're absenting yourself from what God has provided for you to live in that lively experience of assurance through the gospel of Christ. But notice the second prong. John says, not only do we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, but love one another. The gospel wraps us into relationships with fellow believers. The gospel is worked out and worked into those relationships as we learn to live with one another in all the idiosyncrasies of personalities in life. He can command this kind of love because he gives it to us in the gospel and enables us through the Holy Spirit that John identifies in verse 24. And so we don't find assurance in isolation from other people. Instead, John tells us that we are to believe in the Lord Jesus and love his people. And it is in the process of believing and of loving that assurance grows into a lively reality in daily life. You see, assurance is not a static position. That's why it's not some decision you make or a prayer you pray. It's an active process in which we enter into the body of Christ and together we are helping one another with assurance as we believe the gospel together and we sing the gospel and we talk about the gospel and we share the gospel and we pray the gospel and we apply the gospel. And we know this happens because, as John says, it happens by the Spirit whom he has given us. And this Holy Spirit enables us to love one another and encourage and admonish and serve and forgive and show kindness and bear burdens and accept one another. Assurance grows in this atmosphere of Christ abiding Holy Spirit life that believes Christ and loves one another. Hermits have trouble finding assurance because they're continually beating themselves up. We don't find assurance living the life of a hermit. And so when you're counseling with someone who wants to withdraw from the body because he or she is struggling with assurance, push them into the body. You need the life of Christ shown through your brothers and sisters around you, encouraging you. And so I would say, if you're counseling someone in need of assurance, consider their personality, their wiring, their background. Be sensitive to that. Remember that our Lord Jesus was so tender that he did not crush a bruised reed. So be sensitive. Shepherd people in assurance. Build a healthy gospel culture around your church. And brothers and sisters, let us walk in this lively experience of assurance. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to do what you have declared, that you are greater than our hearts. I pray particularly for any brothers and sisters here struggling 
with assurance that you will bring them to that sweetness of you conquering their heart and giving them confidence before you. And I pray, Father, for the many who will be serving the body of Christ in the decades ahead that you would enable them to be able to speak with clarity the gospel and to be able to counsel through this wonderful gospel to encourage assurance. We pray that through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.